0: It's more than just a dinner. The White House Correspondents Association is probably best known for its glitzy annual spring gala. But its mission is so much more, from championing the First Amendment to the unique challenges of covering the Trump White House. We speak with Olivier Knox, president of the White House Correspondents Association. And what can President Trump's approval rating in the states tell us about how he might fare in the Electoral College in 2020? Well, we have the answer. It's time for Poll Hub, so let's get started. Hi everyone and welcome to Poll Hub. I'm Barbara Carvalho, director of the Maris Poll,
1: and I'm Lee Merghoff, director of the Maris College Institute for Public Opinion, but
0: Jay Dapper isn't joining us today. He's on assignment, otherwise known as vacation. So I hope Jay, you are enjoying yourself and uh, getting some rest and relaxation.
1: Far far away.
0: Presidents have historically been at odds uh, with the press, but I think this administration uh, seems to really be taking it to at least a very, very different level. Uh, When we, uh, actually asked Americans about whether they think we've gone too far in expanding the right or gone too far in restricting the rights uh, of the press. Uh, Most people actually think things are okay the way they are, at least the plurality, 48%. But that means a quarter of Americans, uh, nearly a quarter of Americans, think that the rights of the press have actually gone too far and some have think of, has it has res- been restricted too much.
1: We're very happy to have with us Olivier Knox, who's the president of the White House Correspondents Association and the chief Washington correspondent for Sirius XM. Thank you. Welcome to Marist. I know you've uh, been meeting lots of students uh, while you've been here. And I'm, I'm very pleased that you would take the time to also uh, meet with us. Uh, did you find the students a little young, perhaps? <laughs> <laughs> only
2: only reminding me of my own mortality, but apart from that, everything's been fine, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, I, I get that every day. And there's great things about being in a college, and there are things that perhaps are hard, and that's the, the downside is the age gap.
2: Well, you know, it's the, it, it's sort of the same dynamic with our, our student scholarship winners on the that's WHCA, right. where you yes. get this injection of enthusiasm and energy that in my advancing years, I desperately need.
1: Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, you know, and why you're why you mentioned that, maybe you can tell us a little bit about what the White House Correspondents Association does beyond the dinners that get perhaps more attention than things you do all year round and, you know, what the dinners are really about. So maybe you could talk yeah, a little
2: bit about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's important because most people only really know, I mean, and understandably, they only, they only focus in on us once a year when we're in black tie and gowns and handing out awards and scholarships and the like, but really my day-to-day work beyond the sort of the general public education, public advocacy role of the association, is very logistical. It's about ensuring that the men and women who cover the White House have what they need to tell the story that they want to tell. So TV folks need pictures, still photographers need to be in on events that they want to photograph, radio reporters need sound, and print reporters need everything. So um, a big part of my job is to negotiate with the White House to say, that event is closed to the press. It should be open to the press. Come on, guys. You know, if it's closed press, it didn't happen. Why don't you? Why don't you let us in? It's logistics about travel, so I have to manage uh, the process by which we do or do not get a press charter to an overseas destination. I've recently been in a conversation about who should pay for new press vans, uh, the, the vans that carry the press. In the motorcade, so it's a lot of it's very
0: glamorous. Ag- it's the,
2: it is the practical application of the First Amendment, um, which is just a grand way, a grand way, a grandiose way of saying, yeah, totally glamorous. Okay. But it's but it's really important. I mean, without it, most people consume the news and they see the president making a statement in Hanoi, and they don't think about all the different tedious steps that lead to us being technically able to do that.
1: I think one of the things I, I, I want to get you to weigh in on is obviously this has been a very controversial couple of years yep. where you have a president who is um, really has lived by the media in many ways during the primary and general election and, and during his administration and then also is someone who has taken unusual steps in pointing out different reporters and rules have changed. Um, So as an association, uh, how do you negotiate some of these in this very, with all these moving pieces and unusual environment that you find yourself in?
2: Well, the president has taken to the White House press pool, that is to say the small group of between 13 and 16 reporters from various outlets and various media who uh, follow the president everywhere, asking questions in every setting and the rest of it, um, it, this is not a surprise that he would take to the that he would uh, decide that he actually enjoyed the ability of snap to snap his fingers and uh, speak to seven billion humans um, but the negotiations are generally okay um, they're they're pretty practical he's a TV guy so he knows that the, you know if he wants the pictures to be nice he's got to have good lighting and the rest of it um, the biggest challenge obviously for us has been in the presidential rhetoric the attacks on the press know um, I, mean, I told some of your students earlier today that uh, in 2000, and I was uh, assaulted by a supporter of Al Gore. In 2004, uh, supporters of Kerry and Bush both uh, assaulted me. And I still draw a distinction between pre- and post-February of 2017. Which, which is when, means what? Um, that's when the president first used the enemies of the people line. Um, and uh, it, it hit home because I was driving my son someplace a couple days later, and he burst into tears and said, "Bye-bye, is President Trump going to put you in prison? And when we took a family trip to Mexico, he said, bye-bye. If, if Donald Trump doesn't let you back in the country, then at least Uncle Josh is a good lawyer. And that's a different experience, you know, having realizing that he's taking this extremely seriously. And, and of course, every reporter knows that words matter and words count and words have influence. And so, you know, sure, it's part of the theatrics of some of his rallies. But um, when you look at, for example, that Coast Guard guy uh, accused of a plot against prominent media figures and and prominent Democrats. The list looks like it's drawn from one of his speeches. And while unbalanced people will do unbalanced things, you know, I would obviously like this this president to dial way back those kinds of rhetorical assaults, because people take it seriously.
0: Are journalists at greater risk now, do you think, than they have been at other points in time?
2: Um, I, I think so. I mean, obviously, you look at the global landscape, and you could say yes, right? Uh, from from Syria to Turkey to Mexico to the Philippines, there is a uh, a very concerted global campaign against reporters. I think in the United States, you know, this is the first time, at least in my knowledge, that my uh, my colleagues have some of my colleagues have security details.
0: Do you think that the president's rhetoric has an impact on those global situations?
2: Sure, uh, I think that uh, I think that some of the rhetoric that he's had, whether it's on the Khashoggi case uh, or in in, in other in, in other situations, sure. I mean they they can uh, conclude that um, you know, this is not a president who is likely to challenge them on issues related to freedom of the press. At times, the White House Correspondents
1: Association has taken on in situations like that um, the opportunity, not quite the right word, but reacted by putting out formal statements, by negotiating with the White, What's the process by which you determine at what point you jump in and, and try to, you know, put your, uh, put your line in the sand as it were?
2: So the president of the Correspondents Association is the person who decides um, whether or not to put out a statement. Um, and every president of the Correspondents Association has a different approach. Okay. My approach has been to uh, consult with my vice president and his successor. Mm-hmm. These are, we serve three-year terms. And when you, run, when you run for president, you're president in your third year. So I ran in early 2016. So I've talked to um, people that I trust, essentially, so my vice president and his successor and a couple other people. Um, I've put out quite a few statements.
0: Um, Does yeah. it have to be approved by anyone else, or is that just your judgment?
2: Yes, my judgment, which is great. You know, I love shouldering that particular responsibility. Now, I mean, I, look, I ran for this job, and I knew it was going to be contentious no matter what. And so I, I, I don't really have grounds to complain about that particular part of the job. I am a little surprised that it, I'm up to the number of statements that I'm up to, eight or nine or something like that. And certainly we've had some very notable battles, you know, notably mm-hmm. over... Uh, And
0: public, very, very public.
2: Well, by the time you see my name on a statement attacking the White House, things have gone sideways, right? I don't put out statements about things that are going fine. (laughs) So, um, But so, you know, the the whole fight over Jim Acosta's credentials, for example, right, which is something where I had to weigh in both in public statements and with an amicus brief, which is not a a daily occurrence.
0: Critics of the press and certainly conspiracy theorists um, often refer to the media or the press. How unified... Are your members, uh, particularly on issues w- regarding enemy of the people?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, on, on issues like uh, uh, confiscating Jim Acosta's credentials, totally unified. On issues like uh, security for the press at campaign rallies, totally unified. On my statement, sharply criticizing the president for celebrating Congressman Jen uh, Forte's assaults on a reporter, not so unified um some some dissent in the, some dissension and in the why, ranks. why is what, that yeah. what was the yeah. what was the they thought they, so the people who I, I mean i didn't i didn't get a lot of, i didn't get yeah. a lot of flack but the flack i got was that i was out of my lane that um, i was elected to uh, to manage this this relationship the logistics of it etc not to come out and criticize the, uh, the President of the United States. Yeah, other administrations
1: have also been criticized for lack of access. Yes. Uh, I, I'm old enough to remember uh, President Kennedy was being accused of trying to manage the news. Good Certainly heavens, th- Lee.
0: I thought you were going to go back to Nixon.
1: No, I, I, I go. I was there. I remember that, too. <laughs> but do, do you get the, um, the, the access to the White House has been as good, not as good as... Uh, prior presidents uh, during your time in Washington?
2: Since last summer, the, Pre- the, the White House has decided that the president's his own best spokesman, and as a result, he's taken scores of questions. Um, we have not had a ton of access problems. There was one in Hanoi where reporters called out questions and then they were told that, that in the next event they would not be allowed. That's That was my most recent statement. Um, uh, but but in general, it's been it's been pretty good. I mean, you know, people forget. I mean, go back and look at the statements my predecessors put out during the Obama era. You know, when the Obama uh, administration had a concerted years-long effort uh, in which they excluded photographers and put out their own official photo. Um, that, oh, was of pretty, that was yeah, a pretty that was a serious makes... thing. That was the presidency relying on propaganda. And so some of my predecessors had some pretty scalding things to say. The person in the Oval Office is not our friend, and this is true no matter the party, no matter the individual. This is someone who has expended enormous time, money, and resources to gain unimaginable power over their fellow citizens' lives. And our job is to hold them accountable.
0: Now, when you look at the narrative, the enemy of the people narrative, um, do you think it is the role of the press to counter that narrative? or
2: It's a role of the press. I don't know if it's the role of the press, but it's a role of the press. Sure.
0: And how comfortable do you feel doing that and being put in that position? Is that different? Is that a different role than you've had in the past?
2: Uh, you mean than the WTA president has had in the past?
0: Uh, yes.
2: Uh, and Well, yes. and I, you know,
0: and I think also the press in general, I mean, th- certainly the organization and speaking, f- you know, from the organization, which is which is your role, but how comfortable are even, you know, other members in in having to be that spokesperson um, to counter what the president is saying about the press?
2: let me seize the opportunity to note that since I'm at the home of the Marist poll, I have not in fact conducted a poll of my membership. <laughs> and so I don't know how comfortable everyone else is. For and me,
0: anecdotally. Um, <laughs> well, I
2: mean, for, for me it's- it And w- does that differ? For me, it was always gonna be part of the job. And so I, I, can't, I can't complain now that it's you know fallen on my shoulders. Um, I think that most anecdotally, again, this is not data. Um, I have We're I, good with that I have uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, I've run into mostly praise and occasional criticism for the statements that I've put out and, and some of the actions I've taken uh, it's you know everyone's reacting to this chaotic time of conflict in their own way mm-hmm. um, and and um, I, I will say that you know, in, in in the in the bulk of my work, in, in a lot of the logistical stuff that I do, uh, this White House has been a pretty pragmatic and professional partner. Yeah, um, it, is, it is odd. I mean, that you know,
1: we're in Europe as pollsters, where you know people don't who are in office don't believe the polls. The only polls that count are the ones on election day, sure. and then they have all their private pollsters, campaign sure. pollsters. similarly, you guys are, you know. You know, condemned fake news, but the president likes nothing better than to be on the cover of the New York Times or the cover of the Washington Post. So, uh, you know, is that something that you kind of like feel in some ways that you're being used by the access, or is this all part and parcel of the game that's being played in Washington with this particular president or other presidents for that matter?
2: Well, you're always being you're always being used by the access. the The idea at the White House is that um, they want to tell their story and they want you to amplify it. So, sure. Um, you know, you alluded earlier to the media, and it is one of my pet peeves. You know, mm-hmm. someone will see one bad story and generate that you know, you know this ah, oh, the media doesn't care about X, the media never covers Y, and then you go to you know your favorite online search engine, put in the keywords, and all of a sudden you're staring at a full page of every single network, every and single wire service, every single yeah, it's usually nonsense. I, was, I, I want to to also uh, before you go about. This is a
1: president who has been, uh, you know, the, the tweeter in chief, yep. <laughs> uh, and that's really a new mode of communication to go directly and sort of bypass any kind of traditional media uh, sources. The media continues to, as they did during the campaign, the president tweets, and that becomes the, you know, a source of coverage. Could lead nightly news or whatever. Um, is there any discussion amongst your colleagues or thought given to, you know, should this get as large a play in, let's say, the upcoming presidential campaign as it did in 2016 or the president's tweets? Is that news by definition and should that always be covered?
2: I have two answers for you. One is that because this president has completely upended the regular policy process, his words have acquired uh, more importance because there actually isn't the institutional guardrails around him. Uh, they, they're, just, they're, they're not gone completely. But the policy process, you, know, you, you no longer build up to a Hanoi summit you, or a Singapore summit. You just do it, and then you try to build from it. So the tweets b- have become sort of more important. The other thing I'll say is about five years ago, when Barack Obama was using Facebook and Twitter, um, I had a, lo- a couple of long conversations with some of the colleagues that I respect the most in the business. At the time, there had been this shift away from what's called the day story, you know, the big event, whatever the White House is talking about. uh, Do we have to talk about that? The day story versus the enterprise reporting. And I made the case that in the era of social media, we actually do have to do the day story because otherwise we're ceding the information space to the White House's propaganda and they can reach as many Americans as we can. And so suddenly it becomes more important to put the president's tweets in context. I don't mean to have them Dictate what the headline is, or dictate the coverage. But certainly, when the president says something that is misleading to an audience of sixty million Americans uh, or sixty million Americans and bots, um, <laughs> it's. It, I, I do think we have a responsibility to put that in context. You can't just seed that space. Um, we had. I'm trying to remember. I'm going to get the details wrong. There was a, an Obama era Facebook video about Obamacare that got a couple of things majorly wrong. And by the time the press had caught up to it, it had you know eighty bajillion shares. And it, it it's that's the kind of thing that hammers home that you know we can't just we can't just let him have this space. Our job at the end of the day is to help our, our fellow citizens understand what's happening. Around context, them and yeah. make decisions, and if we don't engage the the tweet, I'm not saying retweet. I'm saying <laughs> retweet with comment in, in the lingo. Um, I, I I do think it's important for us to put that stuff in in context, and I understand the frustration that you know that uh, among some some liberals that he becomes kind of an assignment editor. Mm -hmm. But if we left that stuff unchallenged, those same critics would be screaming bloody murder and saying that we've given up. Well, everybody right now likes to root for their side. And I think that's where it puts you much more in
1: the squeezed position there, but.
0: uh, And you spoke to a lot of our students today. I did. Uh, Would you encourage students to go into journalism as a courier?
2: Depends what they want to do, I mean, you know, I, I sort of fell into it. Um, I could I could sit here and lie and say that, uh, you know, growing so what, up. So, yeah, I was about growing, to say, what did you want to be when you grew growing, up? Growing a, a White House correspondent. Uh, 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 sequentially, a truck driver, a pharmacist. Um, pharmacist. A, Interesting. Uh, a country risk analysis a- analyst and, uh, finally, a, a journalist. Uh, yes, I like the idea of, of, of having my own space as a trucker and having, like, this defined area that I controlled and seeing the, seeing the rest of the country and the rest of it. I think I was eight. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but that's
0: kind of what you ended up doing.
2: It kind of is what I because did. Because you doing.
0: also spent a lot of time as a as a foreign policy expert and right, foreign and, correspondent. And,
2: and I did about 70% of George W. Bush's travels. So I got to see a lot of the world. Uh, just to, to how I fell into this, I, um, uh, I, I could tell you that it was co- because growing up, I, I was explaining uh, the United States to my French friends when I lived there and um, the world to my American friends when I lived here. But the reality is uh, my second, very close to my graduation from grad school, I went out for drinks with uh, my favorite professor. She'd taken a bunch of us out, and she went around the table saying, you're going to be this, you're going to be this, you're going to be this. She got to me, and she said, now, Olivier, you, the question is where you're going to be a journalist. And all my <laughs> friends went, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I was working as the assistant to the, uh, the uh, DC correspondent of Le Figaro, big French paper. My job was to find stories for him. He would say, I want to go to Montana, find me three stories. Um, and I was doing it not because I had a passion for journalism, but because he paid very well. Which means that I'm one of the only people in the history of the world to go into print journalism for the money. And um, and I thought, oh, you know, I, yeah, I could do that. I could do that job better than he can. So I sent out a bunch of resumes, and the first people to respond were uh, Agence France-Presse. And so I went to AFP and. Well, it's been almost 23 years. <laughs> and you haven't looked back. Well, we're very thrilled to have one of the two people
1: who have been elected and work in the White House with the name President. And <laughs> and you're clearly one of them. So <laughs> we're thrilled to have you with us and, and very pleased that you could meet with our students at
2: Marist and to join you in the podcast. Thank you very much. Appreciate it's been, it. it. It's been a pleasure. And you're teaching your kids well. They asked a lot of good questions. Good. That's good.
0: In 2016, one of the things that we tracked um, when we were doing statewide election polling was uh, Trump's and Hillary Clinton's favorable, unfavorable ratings. And what we found at that time was that their support and the, the vote that they got really related to whether people uh, liked them or didn't like them. So interestingly, Gallup this time um, just did a study uh, combining data from the 2018 Gallup tracking polls, uh, which had about 73,000 interviews, um, including about 500 or more in 38 states and about 1,000 interviews or more in 27 states, and took a look at Trump's approval rating, assuming that the approval rating would be equivalent to his kind of name recognition and likability across all the states to get a sense of what he might be uh, looking at or what we may be seeing about his uh, strength of support in these states for 2020.
1: Yeah, and as the Democrats start to heat up their campaigns and the Trump plans and strategy, this is something that their, you know, analysts and the campaign strategists are all going to be looking at. So the Gallup came up with some, I think, were very interesting findings um, good news and bad news for the president in terms of his re-election. In 17 states, Trump had an approval rating of 50% or more. Those tend to be less populated states, so they only combine to 102 electoral votes right now, where he is over the 50 uh, yard stripe, uh, mostly in the South and in the mountain states. 16 states, he has less than 40%, and that adds up to 201 electoral votes. So now we look at the area between where he's in the 40s, 41 to 49, um, and to get to 270, the magic number he would have to pretty much carry all but one of the following. These are critical because you're going to hear hearing a lot about them in the next year and a bit. Texas, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Arizona, and Florida. Of course, in that list was Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, which were the three states he carried by 77,000 votes, and that got him the presidency. He carried all six of those in 2016. He'd have to carry four or probably five of those to be successful this time. So, so.
0: again, we're, we kind of it sounds like we're talking about the same thing again. In other nope. words that, you know, there aren't that many pathways nope. for Trump to win the electoral college to win re-election. Are we falling into the kind of the, the same mindset that we had just 4 years ago?
1: Well, nope. what happened, of course, was at the end um, people who did not like both Clinton and Trump ended up voting for Trump. Now, the question is, if people dislike whoever the Democratic candidate emerges to be, and Trump, will they now go for change again? Um, Let me go one more wrinkle back to 2016, and, and then I think this is a topic that we will revisit as we get closer to election day, obviously a long way off. If you're a Democratic candidate right now, and you're strategizing, and you say, I won, if I could win just everything Hillary Clinton won, and I could put together Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, those three states that Trump narrowly won, I've got 278 electoral votes, which is eight more than you need. So, again, you know, you don't have to, as a Democrat, win Ohio. You don't have to win Florida. You don't have to win Iowa. But you better win all those. So, but
0: But also, I think one of the things that this Gallup study also does show, that if the president's approval rating notches up even just a couple of yes. points— uh, this whole deck changes. Yes, and
1: Harry Enton, our, our friend from CNN, uh, took a look at this, and he actually looked at the numbers and said, well, if you just take the Trump-approval rating and put him up two points in these states, uh-huh. it starts looking like 2016 and a narrow win for him again. So this is something that suggests that we're into a competitive environment, and certainly we have to see who the candidates are, what the issues are, the strategy, but it's all going to be fought out in a very, very narrow swath of states, like it was last time, maybe even fewer states this time. And
0: I, I assume it makes a big difference if there are other candidates in the race. So, for instance, yes. this if we're comparing now to then, we also have to assume that there are a couple of other candidates uh, so that the winner doesn't need to break 50 percent
1: not (laughs) as and here we go again so we'll see and that's why some concern is on the democrats about whether mr schultz actually gets in from starbucks or not and but the other candidates
0: last time i mean they they didn't garner you know more than single digits but you know together it was certainly enough to uh, change the dynamic of the race
1: It, it seems about it all being the right votes in the right places And uh, clearly the swing states are the critical ones. And it seems like they're going to be even fewer this time around. So, you know, tell us the answer to Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. You may know whether the president is going to be reelected or not.
0: And that's probably something we're going to be trying to do in the future.
1: And that's as far as we're going to go today on that discussion. So that does indeed do it for this edition of Poll Hub, which is a production of the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. You probably all knew that by now. Mary Griffith is our talented executive producer. You probably also know that. And Kenny Marples is going to try to figure out how to make this editing sense. Uh, we gave him a little bit bigger uh, task this time, but in the end, you won't know he'll that. Come through. He'll come yeah, He comes through. A, yeah, he will.
0: He always comes through. And we'd also like to thank the Roper Center Archive at Cornell University, who provides us with the ability to look back in time at survey questions and results over the decades. So send your questions to pollhub at maris.edu or reach out on social media. Lee wants to tell you about that.
1: Well, I was just going to say, on social media, a lot at Maris Poll on Twitter, Maris Poll on Facebook. You like
0: to tweet a lot.
1: I, I so, do. So
0: if you really want to comment and get, you know, noticed by Lee, uh, look him up.
1: Okay, but the, don't forget to subscribe. Also, too, uh, that's easy to do. But also, someone named Jada Dapper's is going to be listening to this. Mm-hmm. And he's not here today, and he's going mm-hmm. to determine... Did this did we cut it without him or not? And we'll Well, have to see what he thinks about that. To be continued. We will find out. Well, come back, Jay. Come. We need you.